Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the link to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Just a note before we begin, this episode, The Deadwood Dick Murders, was originally going to be a two-parter, but I wound up with so much material, I had to add an extra instalment. Much of the background to this final part can be found in part two, which is out now. It's Thursday, the 19th of July, 1906, and at the Ballina Court, the inquest into the murders of Margaret O'Keefe, Daniel O'Keefe, and Paddy Gillick is getting underway. Timothy O'Keefe, the dead couple's son, testifies about being attacked by Jack Brown, about the boy's past employment with the family on their farm at German Creek, and about finding the bodies of his parents and Paddy Gillick last Monday morning. His sister Mary isn't in court, she's too distraught to attend, and later she'll join a convent and cloister herself from the world as a nun. The police who chased and arrested Jack Brown and taken his statement also give evidence, as does the doctor who examined the badly mutilated murder victims. During these proceedings, Jack Brown, the boyish 18-year-old accused murderer stands by his extraordinary claim that he killed the O'Keefe's and Paddy Gillick while committing a robbery meant to fund an armed revolution in the name of White Australia. In court, the accused appears unconcerned by what witnesses are saying and the prospect that he'll go to the gallows. Jack Brown even winks at court officers and at journalists. Asked how he's feeling, whether he's anxious, he replies, quote, Nerves? I don't think I keep them. I don't feel a bit nervous. What do you think my chances are? I expect they will hang me. My name's Michael Adams, and this is the third and final part of the Forgotten Australia episode, The Deadwood Dick Murders. Over the two-day inquest at Ballina, the coroner also heard from some of Jack Brown's young mates as to what he had and hadn't said and done in the lead-up to the murders. 
One of these was Timothy Hickey, who'd worked with the accused for Mrs Redford at the Ballina Coffee Palace. About three weeks ago, he went with Jack to Wardell. On the way out, Jack pointed out the German Creek farmhouse and said, quote, Will you come up with me someday and sandbag the O'Keefe's? Timothy Hickey testified, I said, What do you mean sandbagging? To which Jack replied, Hitting them on the head with a sandbag. Timothy Hickey said no, and also said no to an offer to go bushranging with Jack. Jack then said he had a number of other mates who would go bushranging with him. Another mate, Vivian Laucher, who was a labourer on Herbert Powell's selection, had camped there with Jack Brown. He told the court the accused had read Deadwood Dick Yarns in the hut, but he said Jack had never spoken about a white Australia or going bushranging. However, he did hint that he'd be coming into some money soon. Closing the inquest and committing Jack Brown to stand trial for the murders, the coroner said, quote, I do not think there has been any other murder in New South Wales which equals this for brutality, and apparently it was done without cause. Jack Brown appeared in the circuit court in Lismore before Mr Justice Simpson on Friday the 5th of October to face the charge that he'd murdered Margaret O'Keefe. This single charge, if proved, would result in the death sentence. If the Crown's case somehow failed, the accused could then still be tried for the other two murders. Despite the overwhelming evidence, Jack Brown pleaded not guilty. His Crown-appointed defence lawyer requested a jury be impanelled to decide whether the accused was insane and thus unable to make any sort of plea. The following day, the court heard arguments about Jack's mental fitness to stand trial. Three doctors, who we'll hear more from in a moment, testified they believed, for a variety of reasons, that the accused was mentally disturbed. But a Dr Smith said Jack Brown had been under his observation since July and had at all times seemed normal. Two men who'd met Jack in the lockup in the past few days testified that he'd told them he was going to act crazy to avoid the noose. Sergeant Reed said that Jack had acted funnily while under escort to the courthouse. But Sergeant Kane told the court his discussion with the accused after his arrest had revealed a sane and cunning young man who told him how he'd gotten through Byron Bay by pretending to be an elderly man and that he'd walked along the beach in the water there in order to throw off any black trackers who might be on his trail. The jury found Jack Brown fit to stand trial and the case was heard from the following Monday. There was no question at all that Jack had killed Margaret O'Keefe. The question was whether he'd known what he was doing was wrong. Dr Smith's deposition saying Jack was sane was tendered to the court. Dr Gagan, government medical officer who testified in the insanity hearing, told this court that he'd seen Jack in prison five times, trying to assess whether he was insane. He'd actually asked Jack outright. The accused had responded, I am not insane and never was. Dr Gagan had then asked him, Why did you take the lives of the O'Keefe's? Had you any malice? Jack. They were most kind to me. I had no feelings of malice, but in a great cause, great sacrifices must be made. He continued, quote, The object was to bring about a white Australia. I would take no prisoners, but kill all the coloured people in the cause of liberty. If free, I should do the same tomorrow. Asked if he realised he'd broken the law, a key element in any insanity defence, Jack responded, It was a state of war, and in war, there are no laws. Dr Gagan wanted to know why had he robbed the O'Keefe's? What was the plan? 
Jack responded, quote, I wanted funds to procure rifles and ammunition. I meant to march on Ballina and fortify it and make Lismore my depot. It is a dreadful thing that Port Darwin should be unprotected by a single British ship when there are 500 Chinese at that spot. At a later interview, Dr Gagan asked, Was it not an absurd idea your taking or capturing Ballina? How were you to do it? What following did you have? Jack replied, The whole white population of the state. It would be a tremendous revolution. There are hundreds and hundreds of coloured people and Chinese in Sydney. Dr Gagan, Would it not be dreadful to take so many lives? Jack, The killing of two or three hundred people would not signify if all the rest of the people could live in peace. I had a great affection for the old people, and it went to my heart to kill them, but personal feelings had to give way. Dr. Gagan asked Jack why he'd worn that Scottish rifle's uniform. Jack, I wanted to make them believe that the revolution was in earnest. Dr. Gagan, who did you want to believe that? Jack, the O'Keefe's and others. Dr. Gagan testified he'd watched Jack closely and saw no evidence to suggest he was faking insanity and the doctor told the court he believed there were symptoms of insanity in the answers given. Another government medical officer, Dr Corliss, who'd also testified at the insanity hearing, now told this court he'd seen Jack twice in his cell to assess his mental state, including that very morning. Dr Corliss testified he'd asked, Do you know what day this is? Jack, Yes, this is the day I take my trial. Dr Corliss, do you know that you are on trial for your life and may be hung? Jack, the unemployed in Sydney will not let me be hung. Jack had also previously told Dr Corliss about the White Australia Revolution and how, in such a great cause, a few or a few hundred lives did not matter. The doctor told the court that Jack spoke in even tones at all times, except when he was talking about White Australia and the Australian Revolution, and that was when he became very excitable. Dr. Corliss had also asked Jack if he believed there was a God. Jack, who'd once been so religious and won that award for his catechism, replied, I do not. This declaration of atheism was shocking, but not as shocking as what came next. And this part of Dr. Corliss's testimony was not allowed to be printed verbatim. Here's how Lismore's Northern Star reported what Dr. Corliss testified about another angle of Jack's case. Quote, While conversing on both occasions, witness watched prisoner's gestures and actions. Prisoner had admitted being guilty of a certain vice, and his appearance confirmed this. This practice was symptomatic of insanity. Its indulgence led to mental deterioration and a small percentage of cases to insanity. Dr. Corliss was referring to masturbation, then widely considered by the medical community to be a disgusting vice that caused people to become addicted to self-abuse that led to facial disfigurement and mental impairment. Dr. Corliss told the court that he did not believe Jack Brown was shamming and that all of his answers seemed sincere. A third medical man, Dr. Mueller, had also given evidence in the insanity hearing. He now told this court he'd interviewed Jack Brown as well. From this, he'd established that the prisoner had been addicted to masturbation for at least two years. This was sufficient time, in his opinion, to cause delusional insanity. As for the White Australia angle, Jack had told him he'd been introduced to the cause by the Bulletin and the Truth. He'd elaborated on the Secret Society plan. First, they were going to seize Ballina, then march on Lismore and Tenterfield. 
From there, they'd split into three armies, one heading north, the others going south. Dr. Mueller asked Jack whether he thought it had been wrong to kill the O'Keefe's. Jack replied, a few lives don't matter in a revolution. Then the doctor asked, if you were outside now and met me, would you knock me on the head? Jack, yes, if it was necessary for a white Australia. Dr. Mueller also concluded that Jack wasn't faking it. The Crown's response to all of this was simply that Jack was trying to avoid the gallows by faking insanity, as evidenced by what those fellows from the lockup had testified. On Tuesday the 9th of October at 2.20pm, Justice Mr Simpson began summing up the case for the jury. It was to take him 90 minutes. The judge said that even if Jack had been labouring under the insane delusion he was acting in the public interest, the question came down to whether he knew what he was doing was wrong and against the law. Referring to pernicious literature, the judge stumbled over the name, saying that Jack had, quote, been reading Deadwood, Deadwood, er, uh, Deadwood. After the Crown prosecutor prompted him, the judge kept on. Deadwood dick yarns. Those were probably not very instructive books. The judge detailed how Jack had been religious but fallen into atheism. Did this make him forget that murder was against the law of God? The judge thought it was possible, because in his honour's opinion, atheism was a strong proof of insanity. As for the white Australia angle, the judge reminded the jury that Jack had not talked about this until after he was arrested, though evidence had been heard he'd talked about sandbagging and bushranging. Just as an aside here, Jack had said he was part of a secret society dedicated to a white Australia revolution. If this had been true, which is highly doubtful, or if he'd been under this delusion, which actually seems quite likely, then he could hardly have been expected to talk about it openly. Despite his reservations, the judge was troubled by the white Australia angle. Quote, No doubt his actions in going to O'Keefe's, as he did, were very extraordinary unless he had some notion of this white Australia and revolution. That he'd killed the O'Keefe's, who'd always been kind to him by his own admission and attacked him, also spoke of an unbalanced mind. So, the judge said, did wearing that Scottish rifle's uniform, which he'd never done before. And all of this, the judge said, quote, required considering as to whether he was off his head. In circling back to Deadwood Dick, the judge also mentioned Jack's other influences. Quote, he had, it was stated, been reading some of that dreadful literature and had said that he got his ideas of a white Australia from the Bulletin and Truth. His Honour said that dreams of Deadwood Dick-style adventure, a fervour for white Australia from the Bulletin and Truth, the onset of atheism and his descent into chronic masturbation had all combined to terrible effect. Quote, Unfortunately, people do fall away. He had deteriorated and got the notion of sandbagging, bushranging, and then the white Australia. The judge also reminded the jury that Jack had dressed up in the uniform, and this circumstance must strike them as peculiar. So too that they were staring at the face of a boy who had murdered his best friends most cruelly. The judge asked the jury whether these were the acts of a sane or an insane man. Jack had said he'd done these things for a white Australia. Now the jury had to decide, did they believe that or did they believe the crown theory that Jack was simply making up this story? It took the jury five minutes to find Jack Brown guilty. Justice Mr Simpson passed sentence of death, saying, quote, 
it is a dreadful and painful duty I have to perform. I really do not know if you fully appreciate what I am saying to you. Whether you are hanged or not does not rest with me. It depends on the executive of the government. The judge advised Jack to seek solace in prayer. Quote, if you earnestly and sincerely repent and pray for forgiveness, I feel satisfied personally that as far as the providence of God is concerned, you will receive it. The New South Wales government refused to commute Jack's death sentence to life in prison. He was sent to the New Grafton Jail, scheduled to be the first person hanged there. Young Jack Brown had wanted to have his photo taken wearing that Scottish Rifles uniform. Instead, he'd killed three people. On the 24th of November, as shown in his jail entrance file found at ancestry.com.au, Jack Brown did have his photos taken. These, of course, were mugshots. Dark eyes, dark hair, dark suit. He was just a month off turning 19 and he no longer looked like a boy. In the face on photo, he stares blankly at the camera lens. But behind those eyes, Jack was in turmoil. While the newspapers had all reported that Jack didn't display any emotion on being convicted and sentenced to hang, by the time he had his mugshots taken, the reality of the situation had sunk in sufficiently for him to write letters asking for help. To the Ballina Times, quote, I'm writing to ask, will you do anything or get anything done on my behalf to prevent me being hung? I'm sure that if anything is done at Ballina, people might start elsewhere. I have got news that I am to be hung on December 12. This is my only chance. You could put in a word for me. You might start Grafton going. Ask the priest what he can do for me. He has great influence in the community. Hoping you will do this. My last request. Jack's hanging was actually scheduled to take place a day earlier than he'd written. When no reprieve came, he accepted his fate and turned to the religion to which he'd been introduced by Margaret O'Keefe. On the 11th of December, just before nine in the morning, Jack Brown emerged from his cell in Grafton Jail. He took a few steps to the scaffold, closely attended by Father Bean, whose ministrations had provided comfort these past few days and since he'd awoken at 3.30 that morning. While on the scaffold, Jack said, quote, I thank Father Bean for his attention to me while in jail. Also, the Sisters of Mercy for their kind attention to me. I further wish to thank the jailer and warders for their kindness. I am sorry I killed anybody, especially my kind friends, and I offer up my life in satisfaction of my sins. As Sydney's Evening News reported later that day, quote, At this point, Brown, who suffered from a kind of impediment in his speech, became almost inaudible and the tension on the spectators became keen, as it was felt that he might collapse. But though his voice dropped and became more unsteady, he continued, May the Lord have mercy on my sinful soul. Into thy hands, O Lord, I commend my soul. A second later, the bolt was drawn, and Jack Brown dropped eight feet to his death. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. While the White Australia angle had received much coverage, there had been no newspaper soul-searching about what would prompt a boy to murder three people for this cause. Or, even if he hadn't really had this in mind before the crimes, why he subsequently thought using such an explanation could cause a jury to be more sympathetic. With the White Australia policy fundamental to Australian society, it didn't bear looking too closely at the deadly delusions that it might inspire. Much easier, of course, to blame our old friend Deadwood Dick, which, as we've heard, began almost the moment that news broke of the murders at German Creek. Here's Victoria's Broadford Courier and Reedy Creek Times on the 20th of July. Quote, The assassin had a mania for literature of the Deadwood Dick type and was noted for his wild antics, which were evidently the result of such reading. Is it not time that legislators did a little less talking and gave more of their time to thinking how to battle with the problem of how to prevent the dissemination of impure literature? In late August, the Lismore Chronicle published a letter from a local bookseller who'd come up with his own solution. This chap had destroyed his own stock of Deadwood Dick books because he believed they'd caused the murder at German Creek. He wrote, quote, Many have confessed to crime lately, and it has been said that a common literature has been the chief cause of the crimes. Why our legislators in their wisdom don't move in the matter of stopping this importation is a thing I cannot understand. There was no such call for the bulletin or truth to be banned or even to rein in their racist vilification of non-whites. And of course, newspapers in the Richmond River area and across all of Australia continued to publish articles that stirred up racial hatred by casting South Sea Islanders, Chinese, Indians and other non-whites as being filthy, immoral, disease-carrying and in every way inferior to the white man. As for other societal causes, such as child poverty and neglect, that might have warped Jack Brown and Thomas Quinlan, well, the Sydney Mail on the 25th of July, 1906, skirted the issue in a think piece called Juvenile Crime and the Problems It Presents. This article did identify Jack Brown and Thomas Quinlan as neglected children. It outlined the basics of their backgrounds, and it sounded like it might be going to address how this may have contributed to their crimes. But the article then immediately deviated into the voodoo science of phrenology, that is, being able to determine criminality and self-abuse from facial features. Quote, Both were, judging from their pictures, of types which might be regarded as predisposed to offend against the law, though in neither case was there, so far as has been revealed, hereditary predisposition. That was another common belief at the time, that criminality was genetic. The article continued, quote, but the one thing which both had in common and which we find also to be common to a large class of juvenile offender was the fondness for the Deadwood Dick literature, the literature of more or less criminal adventure, which has been the curse of so many young lives. Remember, as we heard in part one, Thomas Quinlan had denied that he read Deadwood Dick style books and it had been revealed that his so-called Deadwood Dick literature was an Alexander Dumas book that was meant as an allegory about slavery and a novel by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle that was a Napoleonic war farce. 
As for Jack Brown, there'd been no evidence of the Deadwood Dick books he'd specifically read, just one witness saying he was fond of this style of literature, and that was true of hundreds of thousands of Australian males then. The two publications that actually had been named, The Bulletin and Truth, weren't of any interest to the Sydney Mail. Quote, the crime at German Creek was that of a boy who had proved himself a good worker and a willing lad, though afflicted by a violent temper, but whose brain was entirely turned by the literary trash on which it fed. The headlines and the articles about other Deadwood Dick crimes kept on coming. Here's one from the Gyra Argus. The headline, Deadwood Dicks blamed for youth's lapse. The article began, quote, a number of cases of theft by a youth who appeared at Gyra Court of Petty Sessions yesterday was attributed to the fact that he lived alone and read Deadwood Dicks. Thing is though, that article's not from 1906. It's from the 12th of September, 1946. Let's say you were a male born in 1891. That was the first year I found reference to a Deadwood Dick in Australian newspapers. By the time that Gyra article was published, you would have been 55 years old. And for your entire lifetime, Deadwood Dick had been held up as corroding Australian morals and leading to criminality. Yet the chances are you wouldn't have been convicted of murder or robbery or assault or anything serious. What's far, far likelier was that you would have been one of the hundreds of thousands of Deadwood Dick fans who'd served at Gallipoli and on the Western Front. We can actually see a suggestion of this in a very approving Deadwood Dick-themed article from London's Express newspaper in July 1906, which was reprinted in Australian publications just as Jack Brown was awaiting execution. In this piece, a British writer went to a camp where young city boys were being given military training that included being taught how to shoot. One of these lads even identified himself to the writer as Deadwood Dick. Quote, the camp is an endeavour to turn to useful purpose the Deadwood Dick instinct that lurks in the heart of every boy. Instead of merely reading about the hero of romance and perhaps emulating his feats in a manner that will cause their parents' grief and the police anxiety, they are being turned into well-set-up men and crack shots whose physique and skill may someday help to save their country. And that actually brings us back to Thomas Quinlan. While the other so-called Deadwood Dick murderers had gone to the gallows, the 15-year-old who'd murdered Mrs Mercy Gregory in Sydney at the start of 1906 had his death sentence commuted to life in prison. Thomas Quinlan's mother might have left him to his fate in Sydney, but she didn't give up on him when he was in jail, writing numerous letters asking for his release. Thomas Quinlan was an exceptionally behaved prisoner and on the 23rd of June 1916, the New South Wales State Attorney General, Sir D.R. Hall, authorised his release. Having served a decade behind bars, Thomas Quinlan walked free. Less than a month after his release, Australian soldiers fought in the Battle of Fromel. Nine diggers were killed, wounded or taken prisoner every single minute of that overnight 10-hour engagement. More than 295,000 Australians served on the Western Front between March 1916 and November 1918. How many had read Deadwood Dicks? Given that the average age of enlistment was 24, I'd wager that most had at some time dipped into the pages of the despised pulp novels. 
Yet, instead of becoming criminals, they'd volunteered to fight and die for their country and for the glory of the British Empire. After Thomas Quinlan took off his jail uniform and walked free, he walked in to an enlistment station and was soon in the khaki of the AIF. In 1917, he was one of the Australians enduring the hell of the Western Front. Thomas Quinlan was wounded and sent to hospital. His injuries were severe enough that he was offered a clerical position in London. He refused, and once he'd recovered, he returned to the firing line. Thomas Quinlan, so-called Deadwood Dick murderer, made the newspapers one more time. The Sydney Daily Telegraph ran one paragraph on the 12th of November, 1917. Quote, Mr. D.R. Hall, Attorney General, stated yesterday that advice had been received that Thomas Quinlan, who was sentenced to imprisonment for life for the murder of Mrs. Gregory at the old Sydney Royal Hotel about 12 years ago, but who was released about 18 months back, had been killed in action in France. Quinlan had been previously wounded. Mr. Hall added that it was not a condition of Quinlan's release that he should enlist for active services. Deadwood Dick faded from the newspapers in the late 1940s. And when he was mentioned in the early 1950s, it was often by now-grown commentators who'd been fans as boys saying that previous worries about his influence were all rather silly because they'd turned out fine. Deadwood Dick's, the argument now went, was so tame, especially when compared to the modern horrors now corrupting young minds. Violent comic books, movies that glamorised criminals, and rock and roll music that incited youth to rebellion. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. Thanks for bearing with me while this episode became a deeper dive than I expected. I hope that you found it as fascinating as I did and were surprised by how many issues from 1906 seem eerily relevant to 2020. If you've got a moment, I'd love it if you could leave a rating and review for Forgotten Australia at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For more stories from Australia's fascinating history, check out my other show, Australia On This Day. Forgotten Australia and Australia On This Day are produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.